0: of people, um, maybe even perhaps most people, um, I love dessert. I'm I'm not sure if I love it as much as Will Zick, who uh, preached here last weekend, who's at our Bell County campus uh, today. Uh, He taught my kids a few weeks ago uh, that they should always eat their dessert first at any meal in the event that the second coming of Jesus Christ takes place (laughs) and that you, you want your dessert first. And if Jesus came back before dessert, I mean... Who wants that to happen? And so they've been reminding me that all the time. I don't think I love dessert that much, but I do. I do love dessert, and like people who like dessert, I've got a list of desserts that I like and and dislike. And at the top of my dislike uh, list, as it relates to dessert, is cobbler. I do not like cobbler. And and I know that most of you must agree with me because there was no audible gasp as there was in the first service. A lot of cobbler folk in that first service. And you know, I just don't like cobbler. I, I like basically most things about the cobbler. I do like the bread, you know, the breading and especially when it's a little crispy on top. And I do love the feeling, but I just do not believe that cooked fruit is part of God's will for fruit. And it just totally, yes, yes, thank you. Uh, there's one of us that are in lockstep agreement today, and I appreciate that. Um, but here's the thing: there's just something about fruit that's cooked. It just, man, oh, the um, the, the texture just works on me. I just can't, I, I just can't do it. Uh, fruit was meant to be in its original state, and anything other than that's just corruption, as far as I'm concerned. But so I don't, I don't like cobbler. I'm not really a pie guy either. Uh, I mean, you know, I I know it feels un-American to say I don't like pie, but uh, the only pie that I do like uh, the exception being is pecan pie if you prefer to say pecan pie I don't know who you are and I don't know why you say it that way but it's pecan pie and every time I have a slice of pecan pie in the fall I am reminded in, in the most spiritual practical way of the goodness of God in my life and I'm reminded that God loves me and has a plan for my life and every time I have pecan pie I feel sanctified I'm reminded that one day I'm going to be glorified and and it's just a very encouraging uplift lifting Experience. I love pecan pie, and and that's probably about the only pie that I would say that I, I like. Um, when it comes to other desserts that I just like and and really love, I, I love this dessert called pot de crème, and it you know I've had it in chocolate and butterscotch, and and Paula Huffman in our church she makes it on occasion, and I just it's just fabulous. I love uh, banana pudding, um, and uh, a good friend of mine, Angel Edwards, makes a mean, 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 mean uh, banana pudding. And I I dropped these names for you because if you struggle with dessert, you need to talk to these people because they got it figured out. Um, I've got these oatmeal cookies that I just adore. I love oatmeal cookies. The best oatmeal cookie that I've ever had. It shows up every year at VBS. Miss Cup, uh, always makes them, uh, in our church for VBS. And it's just, man, it's, it's wonderful. It's a blessing. And then I love this stuff called berries and cream and I make it and I'm not too humble to admit that I'm awesome at it. And, and it's just, it's so good. It's one of my favorites. And I'll, make it any chance that I have uh, for any special event. And then there's there's cake. And, um, you know, I, I used to think I'm not a cake person, but then, you know, I've lived long enough to realize that, hey, I think I am a cake person. And if it looks like I baked this one, it might be because I did. I don't know. Uh, but, it, you know, here, here's a big one. Here's a medium size one, small size. Doesn't really matter, you know, the size of the cake, but the type of cake matters a great deal to me. My favorite cake, my... Average Absolute favorite cake is, is a cake that Allison makes. It's a carrot cake. And, and uh, when she made this a few years ago, she made it from scratch. And I told her, I said, I said honey, this is your grandma cake. And she goes, what? And I said, this is your grandma cake. Like, this is like your signature baking cake. Dish right here. This is what the grandkids and the great grandkids, before they come to visit us, they're gonna say, "Has G Mom made the carrot cake?" and and you're gonna have to make it because it's just that good. And I love that. It's my favorite. She she cooks it or bakes it every year for us at Christmas time. And and that's one of the reasons I just love Christmas. I love coconut cake, um, especially you know the coconut cakes that have like just an obscene amount of evaporated milk poured into the cake and coconut cream. It's, it's it's like it's like the anointing that ran down Aaron's beard I mean it's amazing I mean it's just it's it, that would be a little gross but uh, it, it, it's very tasty I love my father-in-law Andy he makes a great strawberry cake like real strawberries in it and I love chocolate cake and you know probably my favorite is uh, vanilla bean cake out of strawberry chocolate and there's this place in Asheville that I just love and I'll go over there just for the vanilla bean cake and then last year Allison introduced me to the Tom Cruise cake anybody heard of the Tom? Tom Cruise cake. Tom Cruise gets all of his friends every year, this cake, and, and she ordered it last year. It's a white chocolate bunk cake. And I'm going to tell you, not only can the guy act, but he knows good cake. And, and it was amazing. It was wonderful. So I, I love cake. Cake makes for a great dessert and you can make enough of it. You know, you can serve lots of people, but beyond cake as a dessert, it also has the capacity to teach us a lot about life, especially if you actually ever try your hand at baking cake. Uh, baking a cake, uh, can teach us, you know, about life and the fact that failure is inevitable. In life, you're gonna fail. It doesn't matter how good you are. You know, the proverb says, a righteous person will fall down seven times. Uh, But the difference is they get back up on the eighth time. Uh, Baking, you know, it's hard not to have a failure when you bake, you you can cook something too long. You can not cook it long enough. You you can mess up the ingredients. I mean, failure is inevitable. If you're gonna try to bake a cake sooner or later, it's not gonna turn out the way you wanted it to. It's a great lesson. that's the way life is as well. Also, uh, small things make a big difference. A little bit of salt, you can think like oh, salt in a cake. I'm like, yeah, it makes a lot of difference. Or just a little bit of coffee in, in your cocoa powder it makes a huge difference with, with the tasting of the chocolate. You know, just small things make a big difference. And, and that's true in life. A small change, a small adjustment, a small investment over time makes a big difference. Uh, another lesson, you know, that we can learn is that patience is required because you gotta go buy all the ingredients You got to bring it home. You got to prep it. And then you got to measure it out and you got to mix it together. And then you got to put it, you know, in whatever you're baking it in, put it in the oven, wait for that to take place, pull it out, let it cool. You don't want to put the icing on too early or it'll just melt off. And so you got to have patience, Uh, patience required and, and patience, you know, we know that's a part of life. And then one of my favorite lessons from cake is that sharing life increases the joy of life. This is what cake reminds us because the only thing that is better than a great piece of cake. And when you've got a great piece of cake, that's a great thing, that's a wonderful thing. But the only thing better than having a great piece of cake is to share a great piece of cake with friends and family. Because the thing about cake is it has a way of inspiring us to share. Uh, I, I don't know if you're like this, or people in your house, that's good. Um, If people in your house are like this, but Alison, she's one of those folks and and I feel like everybody is this way with cake. When you're having a piece of cake and and, and you get a bite of it and you're like, oh my gosh, this is the greatest cake I've ever had. This this, this is amazing. What's your first inclination when you're sitting with someone, you're at the table, you're like, you've got to try this. You've got to try this, this is amazing because there's something about a great piece of cake that just inspires us to share. There's something within the experience of cake, I just don't wanna have this experience all by myself. So in this respect, when it comes to you know cake, it teaches us a lot. It teaches us a lot of important truths, valuable truths about generosity because nobody just wants to have a piece of cake by themselves, especially when there's other people to share it with. And this is what I wanna talk about uh, in our time together uh, because this is a really important subject matter, just not in life, but particularly for people of faith. Now, it's been a couple of years since I've, I've dedicated an entire talk to generosity, And the reason that I wanted to revisit it today before we kick off a brand new series next week is because generosity isn't a one-time decision. Uh, maybe once upon a time you decided you were gonna be a generous person. Maybe once upon a time I decided that I was gonna be a generous person, but it's not a one-time decision. It's not a one-time commitment. It's not a commitment that we make somewhere back in our past and it just carries over. That That's not how it works. Generosity has to be an ongoing decision. It has to be an ongoing choice, an ongoing commitment that we make just not one time, but time and time and time and time again, because when it comes to generosity, we live life, life happens, there's struggles, there's battles, there's disappointments, there's pain, there's joy, there's all of these things. And then as we live life, if we don't continue to choose generosity over and over again, without intent, And sometimes without even noticing, uh, our generosity can wane. We can actually get distracted from living a life of generosity that once upon a time we decided that we wanted to live. Uh, We can get sidetracked. We can actually take steps in the opposite direction of generosity because we got our eyes off of it. And and we forgot that by the very nature of generosity, it's something that we have to choose over and over and over and over again. Uh, Think of it this way. Uh, Generosity, if it were a target, if generosity were a target, it's something that I have to continually and consistently readjust my sights on. I have to keep my eyes on the target because otherwise life happens and the target may move. Circumstances may change. And as circumstances change and life goes on, I've gotta continue and consistently readjust my sights on generosity because this is what I've been called to. This is what you've been called to as a Jesus follower. And if I don't keep my sights on the target, sooner or later, I'm gonna miss the mark. Sooner or later, you're gonna miss the mark. So generosity is a course, it's a trajectory that we have to constantly maintain. Otherwise we end up drifting off course. So when it comes to Jesus, Jesus talked about generosity a great deal. Uh, Jesus would talk about generosity in lots of different ways, but not only would he talk about generosity, but Jesus, he would point to generosity and he would say to his audience, this is a better way to live. Living generously is better than being greedy. Being generous is better than being selfish and self-centered. Being generous is a better way to live life. And if you choose, to live this better way of life, you will actually be better at living life. This is a better way to live life. And when you embrace it, on the other side of generosity is not only a better life, but you're gonna find out that on the other side of generosity, you're gonna be better at living life. So this is what Jesus pointed to. And he said, this is what you should aspire to. This is what you should choose. This is what you should commit to because it's a better way to live life. And you know why, here we are in the 21st century and science is our friend and and facts are our friends. Science agrees with what Jesus talked about when it came to generosity. Uh, According to science, not not the Bible, just science. Generosity makes us healthier. It lowers our blood pressure. It, It does all kinds of things physiologically to us, which is amazing because God not only calls us to these things, but he has so interwoven these truths and these lifestyles into us as human beings that when we choose to live a life that God has pointed to, to say, this is a better way to live, it actually impacts us at the cellular level. There's a physiological influence that happens when we live a lifestyle of generosity. And to me, that's just amazing that God made us this way. Jesus points to generosity and says, this is going to make you better at life. This is going to make your life better because you're going to be healthier. And not only that, but science has taught us that generosity makes us happier. That when you do good, you feel good. And we innately know that being generous, that being generous, it's good. It's good and it makes us feel good. It makes us have a greater satisfaction for life. It causes us to have a greater degree of contentment with our life. So if you wanna be healthier, if you wanna be happier, science says you need to aspire to and commit to and choose generosity. Generosity, according to science, lower stress levels, it lowers cortisol. Do you know that a lot of anxiety, a lot of anxiety, can be traced back to just being selfish and self-centered? And we had the, we have this inordinate concern with ourselves, and because of it, it affects the way that we see the world, and interpret the world, and feel, you know, about the world and about our circumstances. Uh, generosity has the capacity to lower your stress levels. It has the ability to increase your life expectancy. Now. Who wants to be healthier? Who wants to be happier? Who wants to live longer and be less stressed? Everyone. And the scriptures and science says, okay, we can help you with this. This is found in generosity. In other words, when you take the scripture and you take science and you put them together in what they're saying about generosity, there is no downside to generosity. A good business person, they're always gonna wonder, okay, that sounds good, it sounds promising, sounds like a great opportunity. Now let's talk about the downside. What's the downside? What's the downside? What's the downside? And you will struggle and I will struggle to find a downside to generosity. It's good for you, it's good for others, it's good for everyone, which is why Jesus over and over again spoke of generosity in one particular way. Jesus, he had this statement. It would become maybe one of his most quoted statements. It would become a statement that most everybody in his audience heard him say more than a few times. It was something that he repeated over and over and over again. And this is what Jesus said about generosity. He said, it is better to give than receive. It is better to give than receive. Let's all just say these words of Jesus out loud. You ready? Let's go. It's better to give than receive. Now these seven words, have the capacity to make your life better. These seven words have the capacity to make my life better. These seven words have the capacity to make you better at life and to make me better at life. These seven words can make you healthier and happier and less stressed and can actually help you live longer. It's better to give than receive. Now, Jesus said, if you embrace these seven words, it's gonna dramatically and significantly change the quality and the direction of your life. And if you decide to embrace this philosophy, if this philosophy becomes your philosophy, it'll change the way that you see life and it will change ultimately how you experience your life. Now. These words of Jesus are not found in Matthew, they're not found in Mark, they're not found in Luke, they're not, not found in John, which is where many of us know that the red letters um, in our scripture are contained, the red letters of Jesus, the words you know, spoken by Jesus. Uh, we don't find these words in the gospels. Uh, we actually find these words quoted by the apostle Paul in a letter that he wrote to a group of Christians in the first century. And Paul references this statement that Jesus said over and over again, uh, almost like in a passive way, because scholars believe that this is a statement that Jesus just didn't say once, he just didn't say twice, but he said dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of times, so much so he was so repetitive with it that whenever Jesus was talking and he would say something along those lines or say that statement exactly, people in his audience could probably already quote it because they'd heard him talk about about it so many times. So scholars say, this is something that Jesus was on record so much concerning. Just people just knew what Jesus had said. And when you heard these seven words, you knew it came from Jesus. And when you listen to Jesus, you wouldn't be surprised to hear him say these seven words. It's better to give than receive. It's better to give than receive. The question is, and the Bible comes alive, the scriptures come alive whenever we can just interact with them and we ask questions, you know, it's like, okay, why did Jesus say this so very often? And that's a good question. Because Jesus, He knew, He understood, this is not our default intuition. This is not our instinct. We're not born believing that it's better to give than receive, which is why everybody who's a parent here, once upon a time, you had to talk to your kids about sharing because children believe that there's more happiness and joy in receiving and keeping than there is giving. And when you take the toy away from your child because you've got another child visiting your home and this child who's not your child is wanting the toy that your child has, but your child won't share it, it's mortifying, and it's like, oh my gosh, this is terrible. This is ugly, this is horrible, I don't like it. And then you're like, Cher, take this toy out of the hand of your kid and give it to the other kid. And your kid goes indiscriminately crazy because they feel wronged. And why do they feel wrong? Because something's been taken. And a child, humans, we're, we just tend to believe that there's more joy and there's more benefit in receiving than there is giving. Jesus understood that one of the great temptations of life is to believe that happiness is found in receiving rather than giving. There's a lot of people, a lot of adults that would tell you if they were being honest, I'm just unhappy, I'm just unhappy, I'm just unhappy. And what they don't understand and what they won't tell you because they may not even understand it about themselves is that oftentimes our unhappiness as adults It is just this underlying assumption that there's something that I can get, there's something that I can receive that will make me happy because it's gotta be better to receive than it is to give. So this is counterintuitive, but so much of following Jesus is counterintuitive. Now there's nothing wrong with receiving. There's nothing wrong in getting. Uh, receiving's fun, it's enjoyable, it, it's gratifying, but as good and as beneficial and as fun as it is to receive, Jesus said that it's actually better to give. There's something more substantial, more beneficial, something in the end that will be more lasting than receiving. So what does generosity look like? What does what this, you know, look like when we embrace it, you know, on a practical level? Well, for one, generosity is not compartmental. It's very difficult to decide to be generous in just a couple of areas in your life while neglecting generosity in other areas of your life. Generosity is not compartmental, it's comprehensive. That means that when we aspire to it, we take steps in the direction of generosity. We put our sights on the target of generosity. That means that it's comprehensive in the fact that it diffuses into all the other areas of life. That when you decide to be generous, you tend to become generous in every area of your life. And, and so here's what that looks like. When we're talking about generosity, we're talking about generosity as it relates to your time. You you have a certain amount of time. Now you have no idea how many years God's gonna give you. You have no idea how much time you have left. You only can account for the time that you're given and you you, you can't make more time. You can't save time and pull it out for a rainy day. Every single one of us here, we have 168 hours in our week. 168 hours in our week. If you work a 60-hour job, and and not a a lot of people work that much, but some people do. So let's say that in your 168-hour week that you share with everybody else, you work 60 of those hours. And after working 60 of those hours, you make sure you get all the sleep that medical professionals say you're supposed to get. So you sleep eight hours a night all week long. You work 60 hours, you're sleeping eight hours a night. That means you have 52 hours left over. 52 hours of discretionary time. You gotta work, you gotta sleep. And in that 52 hours, which is actually two full days and a little more of time, you've got two extra days to decide what am I gonna do with my time? Am I gonna spend my time selfishly or am I gonna spend my time generously? Am I gonna be generous with my time, selfish with my time? You know, there's dinners, there's friends, there's my faith, there's my church, there's all of these things. How am I gonna spend that time? And only you get to decide that. And only I get to decide that. If you allow somebody else to decide how you spend your time, that's still on you. If you've abdicated control of your schedule, if you've disregarded the responsibility of maintaining your own schedule, that's on you but you get to decide and I get to decide what I get to do with the time that I've been given. And Jesus points us to being generous with it. Do you know that people who volunteer five hours of time a month, that it's scientifically proven that their rate of mortality is drastically different than those who don't volunteer five hours a month and that the rate of disease among those who volunteer five hours a month is much lower than the general populace of people who don't volunteer at all. So I would suggest that you consider being generous with your time because you may not feel like you have time to serve in the local church. You may not feel like you have time to serve a worthy cause or a worthy organization, but I'm gonna bet you have more time than you think you do, especially if you take inventory of your time, if you catalog your time, if you actually pay attention to how am I spending my time because you don't wanna waste your time. You don't wanna lose time. You wanna make sure that your time counts. You want your life to count, so count your time. And when you count your time, your days will count more. And so we wanna be generous with our time. Second area of generosity is in regards to our talent. Every, every person. And I'm talking to folks who follow Jesus. I'm talking about people who claim uh, the local church as as something that's important in their life. You've been given a gift by God. You've been given a talent by God, maybe one, maybe two, maybe a a whole host of gifts and talents. I mean, you're you're just over and above. You're like top shelf. But here's the thing. We talked about it two weeks ago. The local church is at its best when every part's doing its part and you've got a gift, you've got a talent, you've got a story, you've got an experience that you can share with the local church and it's gonna make everybody better. It's gonna make everybody better. Now, you don't feel that way. You don't feel like you have anything to offer, but there's something you're good at, there's something you're proficient in, there's something you're interested in, there's something you have a passion for, there's something you're interested in learning that I guarantee you there's an opportunity to leverage that in the local church. And I wanna say to you, be generous with your talent because we're all going to be better off when you decide to share the gift and the talent that God has given you. And then thirdly, and this is where I'm going to camp out for the next couple of minutes, is generosity as it relates to our treasure. And this is where most people struggle statistically. Um, and, and maybe this is why Jesus spoke about uh, money and possessions and resources so very much. Now, if you're here and you're thinking, "Oh yeah, there we go." Mhm. It's all those churches talk about, it's money. It's all they talk about's money. Well, I'm just going to say to you, again, it's been 2 years, so take a big old pill called get over it and swallow hard. All right? <laughs> Second thing is this, you wouldn't have liked Jesus very much. And you you would have walked away probably because if this subject matter bothers you because Jesus spoke 38 parables and a very conservative numbering of those parables, 16 of those were about money and possessions. Some people make it a much higher number, but just being as conservative as possible, 16 out of 38 parables that Jesus taught had to do with money and possessions. In the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, one out of every 10 verses 288 in all have to do with the subject of money, resources and possessions. Uh, The Bible gives us around 500 verses on prayer, less than 500 on faith but more than 2000 verses on money and possession. So when it comes to the scripture, the scripture talks a lot about this. When it comes to Jesus, Jesus talks a lot about this because he considered it an important thing. And if Jesus considered it important, it must be important and it's worth talking about because Jesus, he believed it was so important. He said some really, really offensive things when it comes to this idea of generosity. He said some really invasive things, uncomfortable things like this. Jesus said, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, I think it's good for us to hear ourselves say things out loud. And especially when it comes to the words of Jesus. So let's just, let's read these words out loud. You ready? Let's go. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. True of you, true of me, true of us, true of everyone. And here's what Jesus does. Our savior, our Lord, he connects our hearts with our money. And he says that what we give our money to is actually leading our heart in that direction. It's like the engine of the train is our money and the caboose is our heart. And wherever the engine is going, that's where our heart goes because where our treasure is, that's where our heart is. Jesus, he saw money as the chief competitor against God in this life. Now, a lot of people look at money as though it's God. They wouldn't call it God, but they treat it as though it's a functional God it becomes an idol, it becomes a God substitute. Because when you look at money like a God, you find your peace in the money, you find your joy in that money, you find your identity in that money, you begin to find your worth in that money. And everything in your life begins to revolve around the treasure. And Jesus said, hey, your treasure is gonna be the chief competitor against God in this life. So you better understand that your treasure is so powerful, your resources, your finances are so powerful, it will lead your heart, it will lead your heart. So what we do with our money is ultimately a predictor of what happens to our heart, not my words, but Jesus's. So wherever our money goes, our heart follows. And it doesn't matter what we say, it doesn't matter what we do, it doesn't matter, you know, look at how many Bible verses I know, look how often I go to church. It doesn't matter any of those things. What's most important to us will be ultimately demonstrated by what we do with our treasure. Now, the thing about it is, is why why does God care so much about money? If he talks about it so much, if Jesus talked about it so much, why does he care so much about money? It's because God cares about our heart. And God wants us to have a heart for him. And God wants us to have a heart for his kingdom and his church and for people. And Jesus said, if you wanna have a heart for God, if you wanna have a heart for people, you need to understand that you need to be generous with your time, your talent, and yes, your treasure. Because where you put your treasure, that's where your heart will go. Now, this is kind of how I sum up Jesus's teaching on, on all of this until Jesus has access to your money, he doesn't have access to your heart. Now, again, I didn't expect anybody to shout when I read that out loud. And I didn't expect applause or amens or go get them pastor, or you're right, amen. No, it was quiet as a mouse in the first service as well. So I understand that we get real tense and real weird about this kind of stuff, but this is what Jesus taught. Money is, it's, It's not an abstraction. It's something that's real, but yet there's a real spiritual component to physical treasure. And what I do with the treasure in my hands has a lot to do with my heart. And so Jesus wants us to understand just how important this is. Now, Paul would come along and and would write nearly half of the New Testament, And he would take the teaching of Jesus, that it's better to give than receive, and and in light of everything else that Jesus taught about money and possessions, uh, Paul, he would write to a group of Christians. And one particular group that he wrote to was a group of Christians living in Corinth. And his whole goal in this portion of the letter is to inspire these Christians to be generous, because it's better to give than receive. And he's trying to get these Christians to embrace a lifestyle of generosity, to aspire to it, to commit to it, to choose it, to aim at it. And so Paul writes this letter, and he's going to try to inspire these Christians to generosity. He's going to do really the most interesting thing. Uh, He's going to use another group of Christians that have expressed generosity, and he's going to point to these Christians that have been generous and he's gonna to talk to these Christians who have not yet embraced generosity. He says, okay, I want you to look at them. I want you to see how generous they've been. Now, what are you gonna do about it? So he kind of pits one group of Christians against the other to say, okay, if they've embraced generosity, what are you gonna do about it? What's your response gonna be? And so we'll pick it up in the middle of the letter. And this is Paul trying to energize and inspire, motivate a group of people to be generous. He says, in the midst of a very severe trial, and he's talking about these Christians who have been generous, who live over there in Macedonia. He says, in the midst of a very severe trial. So they were going through some very difficult times. There was a lot of persecution. There was just a lot of trouble. He says, in the midst of a very severe trial, keyword midst, right in the middle of it, not on the front side of it, not on the back side of it, but right in the middle of it, they're overflowing joy. Their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Now there's so much here. I could talk about this one verse for the rest of our time together. They're in a difficult season. They're also struggling through poverty, but their difficult time and their poverty resulted in joy and generosity. Their trial and their poverty resulted in joy and generosity. Their faith didn't change their circumstances. Their faith didn't end the trial. Their faith didn't stop the poverty, but even in the midst of their trial and even in the midst of their poverty, it resulted in joy and generosity. Now that doesn't even seem possible that trials plus poverty equals joy and generosity. We're tempted to think that things are going good, plus I've got more than what I really need, that equals joy and generosity. That good, a good time and more than enough equals joy and generosity. That when things are smooth and I've got enough, that equals joy and that equals generosity. But Paul says, no, when it came, when it came to these Christians, their trial, plus their poverty resulted in joy and generosity. And that's a powerful concept. That's a powerful perspective that these Christians had that even though they were in the midst of trial and even though they were in the midst of their poverty, they still lived a life of joy and they still lived a life of generosity. He says, for I testify that they gave, these Christians, they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. And that's really just an interesting thing to think about anyway, of how do you give beyond your ability? I mean, it's just such a powerful word picture that he gives us. So they're in a trial, they're in their poverty, but yet they've got joy and generosity. And and here's what Paul is reminding these Christians that he's writing to, and he's reminding us as well. You don't have to be rich in order to be generous. You don't have to be rich in order to be generous. It doesn't matter how much cake you have, whether you got a lot of cake, medium-sized cake, small itty-bitty cake, the size of your cake doesn't matter because the cake that you have, you get to decide what you do with it. And your generosity, your generosity is not contingent on how much cake you have been given. Because generosity is not about how much you give, but generosity is about how much you keep. Now, like I told you a minute ago, Allison Allison is, is a food pusher. I don't know if you have one of those in your house, but whenever they have something and it tastes good, they will not, they will not. They are relentless. You gotta try this. You gotta try this. You gotta try this. It's like, I don't want it. I don't want it. Try it. I don't want it. I don't want it. Look at me. <laughs> Try this. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Uh, and, and, and let me tell you about Allison. I mean, she'll have a great meal, a great dinner, a great entree, main course. And I'm telling you, she's so generous with it. I mean, sometimes what she ordered was way better than mine. And I ended up, she ended up giving me half of hers. I was like, wow, man, you, that's amazing. <laughs> you love me. And then dessert comes. And she takes her dessert and she's like, oh. This is, this may be the best thing I've ever had. And I'm like, oh, it is? I don't feel like mine's the best that I've ever had. And he's just, hold on, hold on. Try a little bite. <laughs> you gave me the whole freaking cow at dinner. You gonna give me that much cake? That's well, not very generous. What do you mean she gave you cake? But yeah, but how well, much flipping cake she got left over? I, I'll. Can I have a bigger piece? No, you can't have a bigger piece. Generosity is not measured by what we give. Generosity is measured by what we keep. And you don't have to have a lot of cake to be generous with your cake. I mean, if you got a little bitty piece of cake but it's the best cake you've ever had and you want somebody else to have some, if you take some of that cake and give it away, that's, that's an act of generosity. So he says, these Christians, they were so generous in their trial and poverty. It seemed reckless. It seemed unwise. And, but Paul didn't restrain them. We would have been tempted to tell those Christians, listen, you're in a bad place. You're in a bad season of life. Hey, listen, no, you just keep that for yourself. But Paul didn't do that. And it's like, well, why didn't Paul do that? Because of what he believed concerning it's better to give than receive. He said, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. They considered the opportunity to be generous, a privilege, a privilege. These people were not coerced or manipulated or guilted into something. They were generous in their heart and generous people look for and listen for opportunities to be generous. And that's what they did. They said, please, we wanna be involved in this. This is a privilege for us. And Paul says, this is amazing. He says, and they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord. And then by the will of God also to us. And this is Paul's way of saying, if you're gonna be generous with your time, your talent, your treasure, it begins with, having your heart and your life surrendered to God. Because when you surrender your life to God, everything about your life becomes surrendered to God. You just don't surrender this compartment or this, this area of your life. When we surrender, we surrender the whole life to God. And he says, they surrendered their life to God. And because of it, generosity, it just flowed out of that commitment. And, and so he's inspiring them. And he says, for I know, for I know your eagerness to help. And I have been boasting about it to the Macedonians. Now, the Macedonians were the ones in severe trial and poverty. And he says, I went to them and told them how you Corinthians just couldn't wait to be generous. And when I told them about it last year that you were ready to give, your enthusiasm had stirred most of them to action. So they heard that you wanted to be generous. And even in their trial and in their poverty, they had joy and generosity. Now, because they were so inspired by your willingness Now's your opportunity to get skin in the game. Now's your opportunity to actually practice generosity. And so Paul, he just keeps on working this and he says, so remember, this is what you need to remember. There's some things you need to remember when considering generosity. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Now." This is a bit uncomfortable because it sounds like the the preacher on TV with bad hair that asked you to sew a $777 gift so that you can get $7,777 back. You know, that stuff that just feels cheap, it feels manipulative, it 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 just feels dirty. This is not Paul doing that. This is Paul connecting our giving, not to moral law, but to natural law. He says, generosity is like seed and harvest. The more seed that you sow, the more that you harvest. Now, this is gonna be a big deal. He's gonna make this point in just a moment. It's not so that you can just get what you want. Getting what I want is never to be the motivation for giving. A personal need in my life is not to be the motivation for giving. Generosity is born out of faith. It's born out of a confidence that this is a better way to live. This is a way that I follow Jesus. But it's also at the same time an understanding that when you, put sow, when you sow seeds into the ground, it's not a waste. Every farmer knows it. Seed in the pocket, it does no one any good. But you take seed out of the pocket, you put it in the earth, the rain comes, God gives the increase, there's a harvest. He says, You need to remember that whoever sows a little reaps a little. Whoever sows generously will reap generously. And this is like Paul, you know, like he's saying rhetorically which one would you rather have? Would you rather reap sparingly or reap generously? Well, I, don't, I don't think I'd rather reap generously. Ah, oh, good choice. Then if you want to do that, then you have to sow generously. It's like, what? Yeah, it's counterintuitive. It's not, it's not our human inclination to believe this. He says, each of you, each of you should decide what you have decided to give in your heart because it's your decision. Not my decision, not Paul's decision, it's your decision. It's your decision. So you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Cheerful. Feels painful to me. No, it's cheerful. How can it be cheerful? Because you don't believe it's a loss. You believe it's a gain. You believe it's an opportunity to make a difference. You don't see it as a loss. You see it as an investment. You see this as a sure sure investment that has a harvest that's bigger than this life. And besides that, it's cheerful to give because you're inviting God to get involved in your finances, question. Do you want God involved in your finances? Do I want God involved in my finances? And we would all, of course we would say yes. Paul says, okay, pay attention. He says, and God is able to bless you abundantly. Why would God bless you abundantly? Okay, so that purposeful clause. Anytime you see it in the scripture, it's getting ready to be explained what just got said. So that, why does God wanna bless you abundantly? So that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will be able to abound in every good work. And then he goes on, in case we don't understand. He who supplies seed to the sower, who gave you the seed to sow to begin with? God, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness Okay, it's like, okay, I understand. And then he gets to it. He says, you will be enriched in every way. Paul's words, not mine. In every way so that, there's that purposeful clause again, so that you can be generous on every occasion. He said, God wants to put seed in your pocket, not so that you can hold on to it, but so that you will sow it. And when you sow the seed that God gave you to begin with, God has promised to enlarge the harvest of those seeds that were sown. Not so you can just have whatever you want in this life, but God's gonna take those seeds that he gave you, bring a harvest so that you'll have more than enough so that you can keep on being generous. Is that how it works? That's how Paul says it works. God gives me seed, I sow it, God gives a harvest. Not so that I can just become selfish, with the harvest, but so that I've got even more opportunity to be generous with the treasure that he's given them. And then he he gives them his best pitch. He says, and through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. He says, others, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity. He says, every time you give, here's what you can know. Your generosity is gonna change lives. Your generosity is gonna make a difference. Go home, read it sometime. Luke 16, Jesus taught that one day when the righteous, when those who have trusted Christ, when the followers of Christ make it to the kingdom of God, once it's fully realized upon this planet, he says, when the kingdom of God fully comes, When you enter into the kingdom of God, you'll be greeted by men and women, boys and girls who will walk up to you and say, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your generosity in the kingdom of God, because I'm here partly because of you. And that's something incredible to even consider that one day when we step into the kingdom of God, that there will be people who will walk up and say, thank you, that you've never met, that you don't know their name, you don't know their story but you had no idea how your act of generosity to the kingdom of God through the local church, how it impacted their life, how it influenced their life. And so Paul says, when you are generous, other people are gonna be the better for it. Other people are gonna get swept up into the kingdom of God. So it may not feel like your generosity makes a difference, but it makes a difference. You may not be able to immediately see your generosity making a difference, but it makes a difference. And so Paul, he wants us to know a couple of things. And this is what I want you to remember. And then we're finished. You don't have to be rich in order to be richly generous. It doesn't matter whether you've been given a lot of cake, medium-sized cake, or a small amount of cake. The cake that you have has afforded you the opportunity to be generous. And then beyond the fact that you don't have to be rich in order to be richly generous, Paul says, in the same breath, don't forget, generosity isn't measured by how much you give, but by how much you keep. Jesus solidified this idea with the widow's might the widow who gave just a bare minimum, but he says she gave more than all the rich people because it wasn't how much she gave, it was about how much she kept and she gave it all. Or Mary who broke open the, the costly you know, bottle of perfume that was worth a full year's wages and the, the the disciples looked at that whole situation and said, this is a waste, this is a waste, this is a waste. And he said, this is not a waste. Not a single act of generosity that's driven and moved by faith for the good of the kingdom of God. It's not a waste. Matter of fact, the world's still talking about that act of generosity that Mary had on that evening in Simon Simon's house. Cake, it teaches us a lot about this. So you may have a lot of cake and you may decide, hey, I'll tell you what I'm gonna do. I got a lot of cake. I'm gonna, let me get two pieces here. All right, it's not pretty, but it doesn't have to be. Oh yeah, there's one. There's two. Oh, come on. What the heck? I'm gonna give three. And that third is a pretty big piece of cake. I'll tell you, yeah. That's a lot, but somebody over here with just a little bit of cake, they're like, you know what? I can only afford to give one. That's all I got, I got one. Now, there's still more cake here than cake here. And this person gave way more cake then this person gave cake. But generosity is not measured by how much you give, it's measured by how much you keep. Every person has the capacity to be generous. Remind if I do. Listen, this has been the tastiest sermon I've ever done. (laughs) You're in the middle, hey, I'll give two. I'll give two pieces. They gave three, they gave two, they gave one. But it's not about how much you give, it's not. Some of you all have a lot of cake, some of you have medium-sized cake, some of you have a small cake, it doesn't matter. The principles apply across the board and there's not an amount, it's a heart matter. It's a faith matter. It's about how generous am I really willing to be? And Paul, he finishes this all up and he, he points us in the direction that We should be pointed. And he says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And it's like, where did that come from? Where did that come from? This is Paul pointing us to the heart of our faith. And at the heart of our faith is an act of generosity. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And that single act of generosity has the power and potential to change the world. And when we're grateful for this, that God was generous towards us, when we're grateful for God's generosity towards us, it moves us in the direction of being generous. And when we're generous, we can rest assured that generosity, yours, mine, ours, it changes lives. Now, to be generous, for some, it may require adjustments, but that's gonna be on you. For some, it may require big changes, but that's on you. It may be uncomfortable, it most likely will be inconvenient. There's gonna be good reasons not to be generous, but I'm not sure if there's ever a good enough reason not to be generous. A better life is on the other side of generosity. A more fulfilled life is on the other side of generosity. Blessing is on the other side of generosity and influence and impact in the kingdom of God is on the other side of generosity. I, I, I didn't include this in the first service because I couldn't and I'm just gonna leave it here and as soon as I pray, we're finished. But I had a I had a lady who came up to me after the 9.30 service and I, I wish she would have came up to me before the first service because I was like, this is it, This you are the sermon. And she goes, I wanna tell you a story about years ago when I was a single mom. And I had my boys and she goes, you know how much teenage boys can eat. She goes, I'm a little embarrassed to tell you, but at that time in my life, she goes, I I was on public assistance and I was only making this small amount of money every week. And she said, but she goes, I had decided that by faith, I was going to be generous. She goes, I didn't have a lot of cake, as you put it, She goes, but I brought a portion of my cake and I gave it to the kingdom of God through my local church. And she goes, I'm telling you, I don't regret that. She goes, did it make things tighter? Yes. Were there things I could have done if I hadn't have done that? She goes, yes. She goes, but looking back to where God found me and where God has brought me and my life then compared to my life today. She goes, I will tell you that I do not regret one single act of generosity because it is true. It is better to give than receive. And I'm like, that's it, that's it. Why don't you just stay at 1130 and preach this sermon? But she had to go. Generosity, Jesus points to it and says, it's a better way of life. And when you embrace it, you will actually be better at life. So what are you waiting for? You've been given cake. How generous are you with it? Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd speak to our hearts. I pray that the spirit of God would speak what we need to hear in the way that we need to hear it. And God, we just want to say thank you for the cake you've given us, whether it's a lot or a medium size or a small amount of cake. Thank you for the cake that we've been given because it is a gift from you. And I pray, Father, that we would be intentional to be generous with it. So Father, help us to do it because we believe it makes a difference. In Jesus' name and everybody said.